0: Welcome to the podcast for Sunday, June 5th, 2016. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Civil disobedience is the active, professed refusal to obey certain laws, demands, and commands of a government or of an occupying international power. Civil disobedience is one of the many ways that people have rebelled against what they deem to be unfair laws. Modern inspiration came from Henry David Thoreau's 1848 essay called Civil Disobedience. Mohandas Gandhi espoused civil resistance and India's struggle for their independence from the British Empire. And perhaps the most influential American to practice this was, of course, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., But the practice goes way back, as we'll see in our message for today. Welcome to the second week in a sermon series I've entitled, Survival, Stories of Hope from the Bible. Like a super bloom in Death Valley's harshest environment, this series looks for signs of life amidst stories of struggle and challenge in the Scriptures. Last week, we began in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and we met a very unlikely servant turned surrogate by the name of Hagar. Today, we turn to the second book of the Bible, Exodus, and we'll encounter not just one, but five very interesting women who rise above life's harrowing circumstances to not only survive, but to thrive. So, let's get started. I invite you to take out your Bibles or open up your cell phone and pull up your Bible app if you'd like to follow along with us. You can grab the Pew Bible in front of you, and I'd like you to turn to the very end of the book of Genesis. First book of the Bible, very last page, or put your finger on the very last part if you're using your phone this morning. In the book of Genesis, Abraham and Sarah give birth to Isaac, who in turn marries Rebecca. They have twins, Jacob and Esau. It's Jacob who really becomes the focal point for the, the, the second half of the book of Genesis. He and his 13 children with four different moms, including their, his, their son, Joseph. Joseph was abandoned by his other brothers. He uh, was sent to, to slavery in Egypt, eventually became second in command to the Pharaoh himself. And when Genesis comes to an end, Jacob's entire family, his clan, a little bit bigger than the Kellys, have made it... Over to Egypt, right? His dad, his brothers, his sister, their spouses, their children, all of them have come to be honored guests. So keep your finger there or hold on to that page, the very last page of Genesis, all right? Now, turn the page over to Exodus or move your finger to Exodus chapter 1. In that very act of turning the page or moving your finger, 400 years have passed. 400 years. 400 years of new Egyptian leaders, known as the pharaohs, have come and gone. Uh, Genesis ends with Joseph and his family as honored guests now. 400 years later, they've multiplied and grown exceedingly numerous, which is exactly what God told Abraham, right? I will make you the father of a great nation. It's begun. It's happening in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 1, we find that the current pharaoh, the leader, is very nervous. You see, foreign countries had occupied a portion of the Middle East region for quite some time. And so the Egyptians always had to be prepared. They had to be prepared in case someone would attack them. And whenever they captured some of these rogue invaders, they would put them to work in forced labor camps. So the pharaoh starts to notice that among his, forced, uh, among his uh, population, there's a large foreign group. Uh, he gets a little bit worried. What is he afraid of, though? Are, are, are the Hebrew people uh, threatening to revolt? No. Do they have the best lands and the Egyptians are just left with the leftovers? No. Were they given rights and privileges that the Egyptian-born citizens didn't have? No, none of these things. It turns out that Pharaoh is afraid of a hypothetical situation. He figures that because the Israelites are so numerous, should Egypt ever be invaded by another country, they might join forces against Egypt and then leave. So he's really just worried and paranoid that the the Israelites are going to go. So, how does he respond? He puts the Hebrews into forced labor, he conscripts them, he makes them do work. makes them slaves. The Egyptians were known for their construction, uh, great cities, pyramids, monuments. How did they get that built? Through forced labor. Everything they made was out of brick. Here's the brick-making assembly line process. Water-carrying, stubble collection, pushing alluvial clay into molds, then carrying those, and finally lifting the bricks into whatever structure it is that they wanted to make. It was extremely hard work take pyramids, for example. A pyramid required millions of bricks. A single brickmaker's daily quota might be 3,000 bricks. A leather scroll from Pharaoh Ramses' day specified that on this one job, this one um, pyramid, 40 men were assigned 2,000 bricks apiece each day. So those 40 men were going to make 80,000 bricks per day. It also notes that many of those quotas were not made. And what do you do when your workers don't meet their quotas? You punish them harshly. At least that's how the Egyptians did it. That's exactly what was happening to the Israelites. Pharaoh put them to work, made it even harder, and all they did was thrive even more. Exodus chapter 1, verse 12. But the more the Hebrews were oppressed, the more they multiplied, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed upon them. Now remember, the Israelite people have done nothing wrong to the Egyptians up until this point. It's just Pharaoh, who has this extreme case of paranoia, and the Israelites have to bear the brunt of his brutality. All of this is important as we begin to talk about the first two of our five significant women. Verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives... One of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah. When you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and, and see them on the birth stool, if the baby born is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, eh, nah, she can live. This nameless king makes death public policy and informs two of the Hebrew midwives of his plan. Now, far be it for me to question the great and powerful Pharaoh, but you have to wonder if he's really thought this plan through, right? Because if all the Hebrew boys are killed, eventually, isn't the guys the ones that you're going to be using to build all these things you want to build? And maybe he didn't pay attention in health class growing up, but isn't it the girls that actually give birth to more babies? Nevertheless, that was his plan, to go from population control to genocide. Evil has come. Two women, Shifra and Puah, Hebrew midwives, have devoted themselves to upholding life. Their names in Hebrew mean brightness and glitter. Interesting it is that they become reflection of light, of God's light, in the midst of a very dark situation. Now, the task of a midwife is to make sure that the most fragile people in all of society, newborn babies, have a chance to survive. Midwives are invited into the home of expectant mothers. They are some of the most trusted and valued people in any society. The all-powerful Pharaoh thinks he has a foolproof plan. Who would dare challenge his royal decree? Surely not these lowly foreign women. And it's into this highly charged political environment that civil disobedience occurs. Verse 17. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So without making a big uh, public display of their efforts, they simply just don't do what Pharaoh asked them to. Why? Because they trust in the creator God, the author and finisher of life. They understand that human life is sacred, period. And Pharaoh's decision to kill sons and save daughters is undermined by the very demographic who Pharaoh has agreed to save the daughters, these midwife daughters subvert his policy, and it becomes a pattern that will re- be repeated again and again. Now, of course, with someone as powerful as a Pharaoh, you can't expect it to go unnoticed. Verse eighteen. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, "Hey, why have you done this and allowed the boys to live?" And we wait for what will happen. Right this is the response to civil disobedience. Our hearts cringe as we wonder what will happen to these two brave Hebrew women. Verse 19, the midwife said to Pharaoh, Well, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. So they're basically saying, hey, it's it's not our fault. We can't kill the boys because we don't get there in time. They just have their babies real quick and they move on and we can never catch them. They're amazing women. And the bold and clever plan out foxes, even the fox himself. And what's surprising is that Pharaoh lets these women live. These two lowly women, at least in Pharaoh's eyes, silence the paragon of wisdom known as the Pharaoh. The narrator tells us that God blesses these strong and independent women because of their fear of the Lord. And we're reminded of Dr. Martin Luther King's uh, statement that said, we have a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. That is what they did. Shifra and Pua, that's exactly what they did, and they did it successfully, and God blessed them through it. Verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every boy that is born to the Hebrews you should throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. So, the king is now taking his passion for ethnic cleansing one step further. No longer on going through the midwives, now he's making this uh, public policy. He's asking everyone in Egypt to drown any Hebrew boy that you find, no questions asked. Just think about that for a moment. Can you imagine that public slaughter of babies is not just sanctioned, but it's commanded for all of the citizens? No Hebrew parent is safe to take their baby boy anywhere in public lest someone might rip them from their hands and kill them. It's into this dark and tension-filled environment that we meet our next female heroine. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine baby... She hid him three months. This is the woman that actually inspired me to use this story for this series. She's another unnamed female, at least at this point in the story. She falls in love. She marries a Hebrew man from the tribe of Levi, uh, no relation to the genes. And they have a baby together. Not just any kind of baby, but a B-O-Y baby. And although the law says that the child should be killed by being thrown into the Nile, she chooses otherwise. And it's easy to pass over the last words of this passage without thinking much about it. But how challenging do you think it would be to hide a newborn? For three months, granted, they tend to sleep a lot, but that would take a lot of work to let no one else find out, at least no one of importance, that you had a baby. Now, there are three things that most babies are known for, right? Eating, sleeping, and crying. Book four if you want to add pooping, all right? That's what babies do. How stressful would it have been for this mom every time her son started crying to wonder who's hearing, what officials might be passing by, who might say something to someone else and soon have him taken away for her forever. But she manages to keep him hidden for three months. That is amazing in and of itself. Verse 3. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. Her sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Now, you have to give it to this mom. She was quite creative. She's actually, if you think about it, exactly following the Pharaoh's orders, right? She took her baby boy, and she threw him in the river. She just happened to throw him with a basket underneath him, right? Not just any kind of basket. In fact, the word that's used for basket here isn't the regular Hebrew word for basket. This word is used one other time in the Bible, and that's in Genesis chapter 6, when Noah built a bigger basket. Same word. She is now putting her baby in a tiny ark. She, she made it waterproof the same way that Noah did. She is preserving life on the water in this ark. You have to wonder what was going through her heart at this time. I mean, surely she knew what would happen if any Egyptian found her son. I don't think she believed that she was making this boat to sail him off to some foreign country where they would take care of their boy and raise him. No, I I wonder if she thought, maybe if I kept him down by the water, his crying won't be as loud, it'll be muffled, and it's away from where people go. Maybe she could take care of him more. We don't really know her intentions, but we do know that she did not abandon him because her daughter was standing guard nearby just to make sure nothing bad happened to her little brother, which the daughter becomes our fourth brave woman, and we're about to meet heroine number five. Verse five. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her attendants walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maids to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying, and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrew's children, she said. Now, the Nile River is a big river. There have been a lot of places that mom could have placed her little bundle of joy. But she chose to do it where the Pharaoh's daughter came to bathe. Coincidence? Maybe but probably not very likely. I'm guessing mom knew this. I'm guessing mom had watched day after day as Pharaoh's daughter would come to the river to bathe. I'm guessing mom also knew the kind of woman that Pharaoh's daughter was. She must have had a reputation of being kind and compassionate. Could it be this is mom's master plan all along? And again, nothing is set in stone, right? This is Pharaoh's daughter. Surely she would have known the command that her father had decreed for every Hebrew boy to be drowned. But once again, this woman initiates an act of civil disobedience. She takes pity on the Hebrew boy, and she does not do what her father commands. She does not drown him in the river. This Egyptian princess values life just like the Hebrew midwives and just like Hebrew mothers do and she refuses to kill him. And now we get to see the greatest babysitter of all time jump into action. Verse 7, then the baby's sister said to the Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, yes. So the girl went and called for the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. Now, This is one of the most amazing turn of events in all of Scripture, right? Big Sister has been watching from a distance. We don't know if Mom had given her this plan or if she just figured it out on her own. But when she sees Pharaoh's daughter pick up the basket, she jumps into action. And one of the things that we said that all babies do is eat, right? I'm guessing there were no Walmarts. Back in Egypt at this time, that, you know, if you needed to pick up a case or two of infant formula, where would you go, right? So unless Pharaoh's daughter was already breastfeeding a child of her own, she'd be hard-pressed to find a way to feed this baby boy that she had just acquired. Enter the role of a wet nurse. A wet nurse is a woman who is already lactating and was paid to breastfeed other people's children. So, do you want me to go find someone to take care of the feeding part for you? Big sister asked the princess. And the princess thinks it's a good idea. Sure, the baby's going to need to eat. Well, guess who big sister found to do the job? Her mom, who just happened to also be the boy's mom. Not only that, but the princess isn't just compassionate, she is fair, and she offers to pay the newfound wet nurse to care for her new baby boy. So think about it. Instead of drowning her child in the river, as Pharaoh instructed, this woman, this Hebrew woman, now gets to care for and love her child, and she gets paid to do it, and Pharaoh himself is paying her to do it. I mean, if that doesn't tell you that God is good, nothing will. Verse 10. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him as her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. We don't know how long mom and son were together, probably until he was weaned, maybe a couple of years. What a gift they were given, that time together. The name Moses means drawn out, and yes, Pharaoh's daughter drew him out of the water, but he will also be used by God to draw the Hebrew people out of Egypt when he gets older. His name has foreshadowing as well. In the midst of a nationwide system of death and brutality, five women respond with boldness and bravery. Five women take it upon themselves to act in civil disobedience, to go against the evil plans of the powerful because they knew it wasn't right. Four of these five women would have been considered by most to be insignificant. They were women with very little power. Nevertheless, when they acted on the convictions of their heart, like the princess did, amazing things happened. And the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 ring 2. Paul said, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Things that are not to reduce to nothing the things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. So where does that leave us for today? Well, this incredible story of hope invites us to reexamine our own current situations. I know for a fact that some of us here today are going through some very trying and seemingly impossible life experiences. So do not be discouraged, friends. Thinking about this story from Exodus, biblical scholar Terence Fretham writes this, What appears to be a hopeless time is actually filled with positive possibilities, but it takes faith to perceive God at work. Is this a message you might need to hear today? Mike was talking about his granddaughter Briley, and if you're uh, on Facebook, uh, you, you may have be following uh, Prayers for Briley that's updating us on how she's doing. And there's ups and downs, and this last week there was a big down, we found out that there's more cancer and it's spread. And then just a couple days ago, a post about Briley out at the pool with her mom, and she tells her mom that God came to speak to her. In fact, she shushed her mom. And of course, her mom doesn't see anything, but that God was there and told her, That he has a plan for her, that she's going to be bringing laughter and hope to so many. And she's using that as a source of strength, not just for herself, but for so many that follow her. In the midst of what seems like the darkest of times, there is tremendous possibility, if only we will have faith. No matter how impossible your situations may seem, or how many things seem to be stacked against you, no matter how much the world around you seems to be pressing in, do not give up on life, friends. Do not give in to evil. Do not give way to hopelessness. Let the stories of these five brave women inspire you to greatness this week. Thanks be to God for the opportunities and circumstances we have to choose life to inspire others to hopefulness, and to make a difference in the world around us. Amen.